Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually, make the comers thereunto perfect. Notice now verse 14. For by one offering he, that is Jesus, hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Do you see the contrast between these two verses where it says the law could not make those who came to do sacrifice perfect, but yet Jesus by one offering hath perfected forever those who are sanctified. Now the word perfect is repeated several times in the book of Hebrews. It comes from the Greek word telos, which is also the root of Christ saying on the cross, it is finished. The word telos means to reach the goal, to complete, to fulfill, or to finish. In the book of Hebrews, the word is used in a moral sense, meaning to fully and completely cleanse from sin. And my beloved, that's something the law of Moses could never do. It could never fully and completely cleanse the person who observed it from sin. In fact, it didn't wash away the first sin. Somebody said, well, the law can deal with a few sins, but it can't deal with all of your sins. I'm telling you, the law of Moses and all of the animal sacrifices that were practiced under the old covenant never could wash away the first sin. But Jesus, by one offering, hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. You'll see this word perfect in Hebrews back in chapter 7, verse 11, when he says here, If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, what further need was there that another priest should arise after the order of Melchizedek? If you could have been made perfect by the priesthood of the Levites, then why would we need a new priest? That's the question. Verse 19 of chapter 7 is a very simple verse. It says, for the law made nothing perfect. Now, sometimes people say to me, preacher, I just don't understand the Bible. Well, do you understand this? The law made nothing perfect. How much could be made perfect by the law? Nothing. But the bringing in of a better hope did. Did what? Made perfect. By the which we draw nigh unto God. What is that better hope? Well, it's Jesus, our great high priest, and the sacrifice he made on Calvary. Then in chapter 9, verse 9, you see the word perfect again. You see how this word is repeated several times in Hebrews. It says the old tabernacle was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. Now, I think we would all agree today that none of us is perfect, right? You've heard the old saying, nobody's perfect. I'm just human, someone says. I'm, I'm not perfect. I'm just human. And we all agree with that. We sometimes excuse our failures and imperfections with uh, statements like that, and it's certainly true. And of course, the individual that expects perfection in this world aims at an unrealistic goal, and consequently, 
sets himself up for perpetual disappointment. You'll never find it anywhere. There's not a perfect relationship. There's not a perfect home. There aren't perfect parents. There aren't perfect children. There's not a perfect church because none of us is perfect. In fact, I like the perspective of Michael J. Fox, the actor, who said, I am careful not to confuse excellence with perfection. Excellence, he said, I can reach for, but perfection is God's business. That's true, isn't it? We can strive for excellence, but my beloved, none of us will ever arrive at perfection. And even the law did not make the people that did the sacrifices perfect as pertaining to the conscience. That is, they could never find complete satisfaction that their sins had been dealt with. You know why the law was imperfect? Not because of a manufacturer's defect. You know, sometimes we purchase an item from the store and it doesn't work properly and we say it's a manufacturer's defect. There's a recall and we need to replace a part. I'm telling you the law did not have a manufacturer's defect. That's not why it was imperfect. That's not the reason for its inadequacy. For God gave the law and he gave it for a reason. He gave it to point across the centuries to one who would be perfect. The law was imperfect. That is, it was insufficient to take away our sins, to deal with our sins because of the weakness of our old nature. Romans 8, 3 says it like this, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. That verse means what the law could not do, God did do. The law could not take care of your sins. And I want to say today that those who are still trying to work their way into God's favor, saying, I'm trying to be good enough. I'm trying to get enough good deeds to balance out my bad deeds. So that when I die, God will say, well, you have the majority of good deeds more than you do of bad deeds, so I'll go ahead and take you to heaven. had a man tell me this week that uh, I, I hope to go to heaven, he said. I may have to, you know, be on the cleaning crew when I get there, but uh, I, I hope to be there. I said, salvation's by grace. He said, well, you, we've still got to work. I was standing in line at Arby's, and they called my number right then, so I was kind of glad for the out, you know. But yet, may I say, many people feel that way, that they still have to work. I'm telling you, dear friends, if that's your assessment of the situation, you've never truly understood how holy God is. That the least little sin is enough to ban us all from his presence forever. And you've never really understood how heinous sin is. So the law and the works of the law, the slaying of animals and the keeping of rules and regulations and avoiding certain sins, none of that could possibly earn your salvation. The law made nothing perfect. You say, well, then what was the use of the law? Verse 1 says, for the law having a shadow of good things to come. The shadow is not the same thing as the real thing. My shadow is not me, but if you follow it far enough, you'll, it'll lead to me, right? The law was a shadow of good things to come. But it could never make the comers thereunto. Now, by the way, in Hebrews, you've got this idea of people drawing nigh to God and people drawing nigh to the law. And those who draw nigh to the law, who come to the law, the comers thereunto, 
the law could never make them perfect. You say, Brother Goins, I don't think it's possible to reach perfection. I'm telling you, Jesus did. Jesus has done a perfect work. And what I want to do this morning is talk about the Father's perfect will, the Son's perfect work, and the Holy Spirit's perfect witness from this passage in Hebrews chapter 10. But I think it's important to start with this idea of the inadequacy of the law. Why is the law insufficient to make sinners perfect? Verse 2 tells us because the law is repetitive. He says, For then would they not have ceased to be offered? If it did make you perfect, then you wouldn't need to do it again and again. But yet the sacrifice had to be made every week on the Sabbath every year on the Day of Atonement. But he says it would have ceased to be offered if it accomplished or achieved perfection. You know, once you've reached the top, there's no way to go but what? Down. Some of these coaches that uh, win the national championship in basketball, well, you know, once you win it, anything less than that the next year is considered a failure. And that's what happens because once you've achieved, then you can't improve on perfection. If the law could have made you perfect, there would have been no need to sacrifice these animals for 1,500 years. That's how long the Mosaic law was in place. He says, for then they would have ceased to be offered. And it's interesting that when people like David, I think about in the Old Testament, sinned a grievous sin that the law did not make provision for, he appealed to something even beyond the law for his cleansing. You remember the two sins David committed? David committed adultery and murder. He took Uriah the Hittite's wife, Bathsheba, and then to cover up his sin, he arranged for Uriah to be slain. Just a mind-boggling sin in the life of this king of Israel. But yet, no doubt, many of us understand how a person could fail like David did. Do you know the law made no provision for those two sins, adultery and murder? Now, perjury, the law had a provision for perjuring oneself. For the sin of theft, the law had a provision. For all of these other sins, there were provisions in the law. But the law required capital punishment. There was no sacrifice to cleanse from adultery or murder. Put to death the person who's committed these sins because they are so grievous. And I think it's interesting that when David prays his psalm of repentance in Psalm 51, he prays like this, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Notice that reference to hyssop. Interestingly, there were only two occasions in the history of the Jews that you read about hyssop. One has to do with the Exodus, when the Paschal Lamb was slain, and the children of Israel were told to take hyssop, which is a plant, and they were to dip the hyssop in the blood, and like a paintbrush, they were to strike the doorposts of their home. They were to surround the door, the entrance to their houses, with blood, with hyssop. And the other time is when it comes to the cleansing of the leper. Leprosy was a terrible disease. In fact, there was no known human cure. And it's interesting to me that as David faces the consequences of his sins that would involve capital punishment, 
and a disease for which there was no human remedy. He appeals to a sacrifice even beyond the sacrificial system of the law. He says, Lord, I need a Passover lamb, and I need a medical cure that is supernatural, like the cleansing of the leper. He says, the law is inadequate to resolve my needs. I'm telling you, dear friends, the Lord has provided that remedy for you and me in Jesus Christ. He is our Passover lamb who was slain for us. And he is the one who's cleansed the leprosy of sin, the deformity of sin away from our hearts. You know, another reason the law was inadequate, not only was it repetitive, but verse 3 says, in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. It served only as a reminder. The law was inadequate because all it did, it didn't take away sin, it just reminded the people of their need for atonement. Not only did it remind the people, not only did it bring their sins to their remembrance, but it underscored the fact that God remembers sin. Notice the contrast in verse 3 to the 17th verse where God says, in the new covenant, your sins and iniquities I will remember no more. The law brought sin to remembrance, but God says in the new covenant, I will remember your sins no more. My beloved, God is not forgetful. He doesn't have memory loss. And the Lord remembers our sins against us, except for the fact that Jesus Christ has made the perfect sacrifice to satisfy God so that he doesn't recall them against us anymore. And if he did, which one of us could stand? Have you ever been impressed by the words in Psalm 130, verse 4, when David says, Lord, if thou shouldest mark iniquities, who could stand? If every time you came to the Lord in prayer, he said, well, before I answer your prayer, let me roll out the list of all of your past sins. Which one of us would have any hope of ever getting a prayer answered? I wouldn't. But yet God does not remember your sins. You say, well, why doesn't he remember my sins? Not because he's forgetful, but because Jesus Christ has put them away as far as the east is from the west. In fact, it's interesting to look at all the contrasts in this passage. Notice the contrast. Verse 1, the sacrifice under the law was year by year continually. Verse 10, the sacrifice of Christ was once for all. You might draw two headings here. A chart with two headings. Sacrifices under the law, Christ's sacrifice. Under the law, it was year by year continually. Under Christ, it was once for all. Under the law, verse one says it could not make perfect under Christ. Verse 14, he perfected forever. Under the law, it brought sin to remembrance. Verse 3, under Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, your sins are remembered no more. Verse 17, under the law, the priest is standing. Verse 11, every high priest standeth daily. Under Christ's sacrifice, our priest sat down. Verse 12. You see the contrast in this passage between what the animal sacrifices did and what Jesus Christ accomplished. No wonder he says in verse 4 then, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Interestingly, there are four impossible things in the book of Hebrews. Chapter 6 verse 4 says it's impossible to restore an apostate to repentance. You can't talk long enough or present an argument conclusive enough to restore someone who has fallen away, who's wandered from the fold, who's in such a mindset, he says it's impossible to renew them to repentance. 
What does the word impossible mean? It means, in technical terms, impossible. <laughs> it's not possible, right? In chapter 6, verse 19, he says, it's impossible for God to lie. When God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie. How possible is it that God would prevaricate or that he would tell a fib? My beloved, it's not possible. There's not even a hint of a possibility that God could break his word. It's impossible. The third impossible thing in the book of Hebrews, it's not only impossible to restore the apostate and impossible for God to lie, but in chapter 11, verse 6, it says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. You say, what hope do I have that God would be happy with me if I come to him with a sacrifice like Cain did? You know, Cain did not offer his sacrifice by faith. It wasn't consistent with divine revelation. Abel offered a sacrifice by faith, according to Hebrews chapter 11. Was God pleased with Cain's sacrifice? No, because it was not offered by faith. Cain offered it of his own will. He just came up with it on his own. He didn't follow God's prescribed revelation. It wasn't by faith. And my beloved, it's impossible to please God without faith. Just as impossible as it is for you and me to talk somebody that's wandered away into coming back, unless God intervenes, just as impossible as it is for God to lie, and just as impossible as it is to please God without faith, it's that impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, for it is not possible, says verse 4, that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. The fact is, only a man can substitute for another man. An animal cannot be a substitute for a human being who is the crown of God's creation, made in the image of God. There's something lacking. There's something that doesn't exactly measure up when a a cow or a goat or a lamb is sacrificed for a human being. Only a human being can atone for the sins of another human being. In other words, we need someone to come to our rescue that is an incarnation of humanity. And that leads us to verse 5 in Hebrews 10, where he says, Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering, thou wouldest not but a body. Hast thou prepared me? Now, this refers to the incarnation and advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. We think about that theme around the Christmas holiday season each year. When we think about God coming in human form, assuming a human nature, God was manifest in the flesh. When Jesus Christ was born, my friends, he is truly God, but he became truly man he assumed our nature, didn't he? he? Bone of our bone, flesh of our flesh, in every respect except for sin. Jesus was not a sinner. But yet he came into this world, and what an amazing condescension. How far did he have to step down to do that? My beloved, he came way down. In fact, Philippians chapter 2 describes it like this, that he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. I see a stairwell of downward steps. Jesus Christ left the dignity of heaven's pure world. He divested himself of his divine prerogatives and he assumed our nature. The infinite God 
assumed the limitations of a human body. Now, is your body, does your body limit you? It limits me. I can only be in one place at one time. My body is the vehicle by which I interact with the world, but it limits me. My friends, God is not limited. God is infinite, but yet he assumed finitude. He assumed a finite human anatomy. And he came way down and he assumed that body for the sake of dying as a sacrifice for our sins. Listen to the verse. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith. Now, this is a quotation from the 40th Psalm. And interestingly, the Holy Spirit applies this passage from Psalm 40, verses 6 and 7, to the Messiah when he came into the world. Now, think about that. You know, when a little baby's born, the baby comes from mother and father and a new child is born. That baby is born into the world, but it didn't come. It didn't exist prior to its conception and birth. But Jesus came into this world, but he existed from all eternity, you see. He's God. He came down from heaven, right? John six thirty seven. I came down from heaven. No man says John chapter 3 has ascended up to heaven except the one who came down from heaven. He first descended. And when he came into the world in the form of that little baby of the Virgin Mary, it says, he saith. Now, here are the words that the Holy Spirit puts into the mouth of the Messiah as he comes on a mission. And here's his message to the Father. Sacrifice and offering. Thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. I want you to notice the Father's perfect will. And you see it in this word, wouldest. Sacrifice and offering, thou wouldest not. What does the word wouldest mean in this verse? Well, the word is the Greek word thelo, and it means to will something. Now, you know if you remember your English grammar class from fifth grade that Will and would, just like shall and should, or can and could, you know, go together. So when he says, sacrifice and offering, thou wouldest not, that is, it's not your will, Father, for animal sacrifices and offerings to take away sin. In the sacrifices and offerings of the Old Testament, he says, thou neither hadst pleasure therein. They did not please God. They didn't satisfy the justice of God. But a body hast thou prepared me. And that speaks of the virgin birth, doesn't it? Who prepared the body in the womb of the Jewish Virgin Mary? Well, Mark 135, or Luke 135, I should have said, says that the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, Mary, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. And that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. That is, Mary gave birth miraculously. She conceived miraculously by the Holy Ghost. She was with child of the Holy Spirit. And the idea, my friends, is that there's something supernatural here. She'd never known a man. God prepared that body. Now, it was a real human body. You say, can God prepare a body out of nothing? He did it with Adam, didn't he? I mean, he took dust and made Adam in the original creation. And now he prepares another body with the second Adam. And his advent into this world, 
The father was not pleased. It was not his will. He would us not with the Old Testament sacrifices that they should take away sin. This word fellow means to will something and then to press on to action. It suggests both the idea of a resolve and the idea of the action that is necessary to implement that resolve. May I say God never resolved or intended to save people through the law. Galatians 3.21, the Apostle Paul says, If there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness would have been by the law, but Christ would have died in vain, if that's the case. Did Jesus die in vain? Was the cross of Calvary unnecessary? No, my friends, because there's no other way. There wasn't a law that could have given life. Is there a law that Congress could pass that could make a person who's deceased alive? No. And even the law of God did not make the dead and trespassing and sins alive in Christ. It takes something more than a law. So it was never God's will to provide salvation through the law. You say, then what was the purpose of the law? It was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. It was the tutor to make sure the kids arrive at school. The law, in other words, takes us. It brings us to Christ. The purpose of the law was to bring people to the point that they would anticipate the coming of the ultimate sacrifice in Jesus. Now, it's God's perfect will, therefore, to prepare a body for Christ that through that body he would provide salvation. And the Son assumed a human nature in order to act on the Father's will. What I'm saying this morning is our salvation is the product of the Father's will plus the Son's action. It's not the product, my beloved, of your will and your efforts and your works. Whose will? Here's a good question for every one of us this morning. Whose will determines your eternal salvation? Your free will or God's free will? Who's really free? Who's really sovereign? Whose will is really determinative? Is it your decision that determines whether you'll go to heaven when you die? Many Christian people would say yes. Many people would say, uh, yeah, you've got to make the decision. And if you'll make the decision, then you can guarantee that you'll be saved. I'm telling you, dear friends, it's not the sinner's fickle will that determines the final outcome of his salvation. For the Bible tells us that left in our old nature, we don't have a will, we have a will not. (laughs) Isaiah 26.10 says, let favor be shown to the wicked, yet he will not learn righteousness. Let him dwell in the land of uprightness, yet he will not behold the majesty of the Lord. Psalm 10.4 says, The wicked through the pride of his countenance will not seek after God. God is not in all of his thoughts. John 5.40, Jesus says, You will not come unto me that you might have life. In other words, man's decisions are all contrary to God before the Lord touches him and changes his heart. And if God had not decided and made a choice and purposed and designed To save sinners, no one would have ever been saved. Heaven would be empty and a thousand hells would be filled to capacity. You say, Brother Goins, when did God make this decision before time began in the covenant? Ephesians 1.5 says, Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children according to the good pleasure of his own will. It sounds like he's doing things the way he wants to, doesn't it? Ephesians 1.11 says, In whom we have an inheritance according to the working of him who worketh all things, according to the purpose of his own will. It's God's will, not the sinner's will, that determines final salvation. 
And may I say the reason that's good news is because his will is a perfect will. The law could not make perfect, but God never intended. He didn't design to save sinners through the law. The law was simply preparatory to point us to what he did design. When did he make this plan? Before the world began. The Father's perfect will. And may I say the Son came in the fullness of time to implement the will of God. I love John 6, 37. I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he's given me, I should lose nothing but raise it up again at the last day. Even in the effectual call of the Holy Spirit, not only in the covenant and in Christ, but in calling, it's God's will that quickens and awakens a sinner into new life. John 1.13 says, you believe in Christ which were born, you're born again before you believe, which were born not of the will of man, nor of the will of the flesh, but of God. What I'm saying this morning is summarized in Romans 9.15 when he says, For it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but it is of God that showeth mercy. Salvation is not a choice you make, and it's not a work you perform. It's not of him that willeth, it's not your decision, nor of him that runneth, it's not your activity, but it is of God that showeth mercy. I'm glad to believe in the sovereign will of God. It's a perfect will. And notice it says in verse 9, I came to do thy will, O God. When Jesus came into the world, he came on this mission to do the Father's will. The Father had made the plan. The Son came to implement that plan. And then he says, by the which will in verse 10. Now, which will? You know, if people will just read the Bible, it'll clear up a lot of confusion. He's talking not about man's will, but he's talking about God's will in the context. Thy will, O God, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You know what the word sanctified means? It means to be made holy. The synonym for it is a saint. Now, I want to ask you a question. Are you a sinner or a saint? Today, well, you say, Brother Goins, uh, I'm a sinner. I looked in the mirror this morning, and I saw a sinner. But I'm asking you to look into a different mirror. Look into the perfect law of liberty, into the mirror of the gospel. And what does it tell you about yourself? It tells you that you are sanctified. You are already a saint. Notice, you don't have to wait until you're, you're dead to be declared a saint by someone else. The Bible speaks of every child of grace as already holy already a saint by virtue of what Jesus did on the cross. As far as God is concerned and your home in heaven is concerned, my friends, may I say you are already a saint, even though you feel like a sinner. Let me ask you a question. If an old preacher brother who's been preaching the gospel and lived a godly life and everyone respects him passes away, and at the same time a little child who's still in his mother's arms passes away, which one is going to get into heaven first? Which one is more holy? Well, so far as deeds of righteousness and holiness are concerned, you look at their life. Which one has accrued more good works? Which one has done more good? Which one has been a blessing to more people? Somebody says, I think that old preacher would get into heaven before that little bit. I'm telling you, they'd both get there at the same time. Do you know why? Because you don't go to heaven based on the life that you lived or how holy you are. 
Because the fact is, none of us can be holy enough. We go to heaven solely because Jesus Christ is our sanctification. And by one offering, he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. By the which will, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So there's the Father's perfect will. It leads to the Son's perfect work in verses 11 to 14. When he says, And every priest standeth daily, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. You know, I think our old preachers had something right when they would say from this verse that there was not a piece of furniture to sit down on in the old tabernacle. Have you ever studied the items of furniture in the tabernacle worship and temple worship of the Old Testament? There was a candelabra. There was a brazen altar, there's a brazen laver, a wash basin made out of brass. There was a table of showbread, and there was, you know, the Ark of the Covenant and a mercy seat. You say, where's a chair? Wasn't there a chair for the priest when he got a little bit weary to sit down in the chair and to rest a while? No, there was not a chair, there was not a sofa, there was not a divan, there was not a recliner, there's not even a folding chair, a beach chair in the tabernacle. Do you know why? Because the work of that priest was never done. He didn't have time to rest. He stood daily, offering oftentimes the same sacrifices over and over and over again, which could never take away sin. But this man, talking about Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Do you see the contrast in this verse between the priest who was on his feet 24-7 and the great high priest, our Lord Jesus Christ, who made one sacrifice and he was able to go home and sit down and assume this posture of rest? May I say the posture of rest that our Lord Jesus assumed when he ascended to heaven declares the finality and the success of his redeeming work on the cross of Calvary. And this is so consistent. Several times in Hebrews we've read that when he had finished his work, he went home and he sat down at the right hand of God. Where's Jesus today? He's sitting. Now I want to ask you a question. Could he have sat down if anything remained to be done in the salvation of sinners? If he had just made salvation possible and you're the one who seals the deal by believing or by accepting or by deciding... If he had just made it available, but you have to still do something to make it true to you. Could Jesus have sat down? Could he have sat down and said, well, I did my part. Now it's up to them. My friends, may I say, he couldn't have sat down. Our Lord loves his own so that I think he would have paced the floors of heaven, wringing his hands, wondering if that preacher will cooperate and carry the message. And if that sinner will cooperate and do the works necessary. No, my friends, he couldn't have sat down. Do you know why Jesus sat down when he went to heaven? Because he was satisfied. He was finished. He had perfected forever. For by one offering, it says he hath perfected forever. Now, can you improve on perfection? Absolutely not. And what he did on the cross was a perfect work. The Father's perfect will planned it. That's the motive of your salvation. The Son's perfect work secured it. That's the means of salvation. And may I say the Holy Spirit's perfect witness is its manifestation, verses 15 to 18. He says, whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. Now the Holy Ghost witnesses to the perfect work that Jesus has accomplished on Calvary's cross. He witnesses that in our hearts. 
First John chapter 5 speaks of the inward witness of the Spirit. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. That is, you show me a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll show you somebody who gives evidence that the Holy Spirit indwells their hearts already. He that believeth, present tense, on the Son of God hath, past perfect tense, the witness within himself. When a person is born again, the Holy Spirit comes to live on the inside of you. He takes up residence in your heart. He's there as a witness, giving testimony. When the gospel is preached, there's something inside of you that says, that's true, and it's true for me. It resonates with the gospel that is preached. It's an inward witness. And may I say the person who doesn't have that inward witness cannot hear and understand the external call of the gospel. That's, that's a fact. Unless you have the inward witness, that's really what Romans 10 is talking about. When he says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, the next verse he says, well, have they not heard? And the question is, absolutely, they've heard. The Jews under the old covenant, they heard, but then why didn't they believe? If faith comes by hearing, and what he says in Romans 10 is there has to be something on the inside. The word is in thy heart. You've got to have something in your heart before you can hear it through your ear. Let me illustrate like this. Old-time transistor radios had to have a receiving set in order to hear the station. Somebody say, do you have a radio? I do. I happen to have a little transistor radio right here. I can tune it to the AM or FM band, and we can move the knob, and we can pick up a signal. Now, the fact is, those signals are all around us, right? In this room right now are radio waves, sound waves. They're all around us, wherever we go. But you know, we can't hear the radio waves. We can't hear this local station unless we have a receiving set. I'm telling you, I can preach the gospel all day. Send out the gospel radio waves. Yeah, I'm broadcasting from WORD. <laughs> but you know, you can't hear them unless you have a receiving set already given in your heart in the new birth. And that's what he's talking about here when he says, the Holy Spirit is a witness to us. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I'll put my laws into their hearts, into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. Now, he's not just saying that you'll have a book that you can go read, but I'll put it on the inside of you. And then when you read the book, it reciprocates with what is on the inside of you. You've got God's law of love written in your heart when you're born again. And now the external word of the gospel resonates with that. I will write my laws in their minds and their sins and iniquities. I will remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Perfection has been reached. There's no need to make further sacrifices. Now I do not celebrate the Mass because whatever you say about it, this much at least could be agreed upon that there is a sacrifice made again and again in the celebration of the Mass. I'm telling you, Jesus Christ does not need to be re-sacrificed. He's made one sacrifice for sins forever. And because of that, we have been made perfect so that we are saints. And a saint doesn't even have the slightest hint of a sin. So far as God is concerned, my beloved, you are holy. You are saints. You are sinless. You are perfect. 
even though right now we struggle with an old nature, yet positionally speaking, so far as your position in heaven is concerned, God sees you through Christ and he says, I'm satisfied. He's perfected you forever, something the law could never do. The point of this passage is that the new covenant is superior to the old because the perfect sin offering has been made. The law has been kept perfectly. The sins of God's people have been perfectly removed forever. We don't just have to hope for excellence in the new covenant. We have a message of perfection because God did it. Perfection is God's business. And I'm telling you, the salvation of sinners is God's business. So what further need have we of the ceremonial law? There is none because we've been perfected forever through the offering of Jesus Christ. Did you know when you get to heaven, you'll realize what it is to be perfect. You'll realize it. I've never known that here. I've never preached a sermon that was perfect. Far from it. I can beat myself up all day long over it and think, man, I should have said it this way instead of that. Should have said pot instead of pan. <laughs> you know, I should have I preached too long, preached, didn't develop the point that I wanted to like I should have. My mind was foggy. I'd never preached a perfect sermon, never sung a perfect song. You say, well, perfection would be boring to me. Now, it's, we, we just can't conceive of it right now because we live in a world that's imperfect. My friends, you won't be bored in heaven. They'll say, you'll be there because Jesus paid the price. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. I'm glad there's something perfect. Aren't you glad there's one thing perfect in your life? Anything else perfect? Your home perfect? Your track record perfect? <laughs> your attitude perfect? Your bank account perfect? Your job performance perfect? You have a perfect attendance record at church? Are you perfect? No, my friends, I'm not. But I'm glad I've got a perfect Savior. Aren't you? Yes. Perfect Savior.
listening to Grace Alone Radio Network, streaming Bible teaching from a primitive Baptist perspective, around the clock and around the world.